0: i'm recording we're uh here with cassidy we're gonna talk we uh we connected on discord a while back and we were gonna just have a discussion about uh kind of ourselves religion orthodoxy converting to orthodoxy what that looks like um what our experience with that uh, has been and so we're just gonna roll and see where it goes
1: yeah yeah, well, thanks for talking with me. I mean, I I wanted to talk with you about this because I feel like you've been in my shoes before where you've yeah. had this evangelical culture and you found this sort of love or kind of, um, I don't know what's the word, but comfort maybe in orthodoxy. And for me, the the journey of like experiencing orthodoxy and trying to understand it has been very different from anything else i've experienced when it comes to looking into religion where Mm. it's not this hyper skeptical questioning probing thing it's this sort of genuine interest and sort of um almost pull to it where it's like i don't think i could you know I I don't think I could explore anything else right now it just feels Mm. right and it feels like this natural thing that's like I have questions but they're not trying to figure out and find the holes it's just really like okay there's something here and I want to figure it out and like I don't want to just like jump headfirst into something that I don't know anything about but there is this sort of um peace and sense about it but I think it comes with a lot of uh mean a lot of trade-offs. And so, I I mean, I'd love to kind of hear your experience about it a little more. I mean, I've heard a little bit through discord Mm -hmm. conversations and stuff, but.
0: Yeah. Well, so broadly, um, you know, I don't know, I was trying to even trying to even think of the first time I even became aware of the Orthodox church. I don't even know when that would have been. Um, I mean, it's probably something, it's one of those things that I'm sure throughout probably not my early upbringing, but probably in my adulthood, I've probably heard of orthodoxy. Uh, But it had, it had been like a very, very passing thing. I don't, it's just funny how, um, the history of the church, uh, was something that I'm very still very ignorant of on the grand scheme of it, because there's just so much. Um, But really before um, becoming more interested in Orthodoxy, I just knew very little. Like you'd hear every once in a while, like I remember there was a after I don't remember when that was a number of years ago, like a bunch of um, Coptic Christians in Egypt were beheaded or something. And there was a big deal online. I think I remember that happening and you know you hear about that thing but i mean i had no i have no frame for even understanding what coptic christianity was or is you know it's just the thing that you hear and you're like oh they're christians and um so i mean i'm sure i was familiar with orthodoxy just very just in name only and then really through my um let's see the the broad strokes are when my after my wife and i got married um when we were living in minneapolis i got really uh probably the easiest way to say it is the uh young restless and reformed camps of event of the evangelical world so like uh john piper the gospel coalition um together for the gospel those kinds of crowds Mm -hmm. if people are familiar with it so kind of like reformed the way you would say it theologically is like they're reformed in their soteriology so like their understanding of salvation is very reformed and calvinist but then um, they're all baptists um, so they believe in believers baptism they're all continuationists they believe in the gifts of the spirit so they are uh, and well, and really like the Southern, the Southern Baptists largely are within that fold now, which is the biggest Christian denomination, I think in the world. So, so it has a fairly big expression. And so I was in those camps and they all tend to be the young restless and reformed Mark Driscoll, um, sovereign grace ministries was the particular one I was most associated with. So like Joshua Harris, <clears throat> um, and they they're really known as being they were very popular for a while probably less so now um broadly because they were known as being uh they were one they were um more intense what what are some of the key words they would say like more bible-centric gospel-centric uh intellectual crowds so they weren't like the, more of the anti-intellectual types but there was a certain culture if developed around them. And so I was in that culture. And so I got really into theology, got really into systematic theology, um, started getting more interested in philosophy, which I had never really studied a lot, um, growing up. Cause I just didn't, I mean, I studied chemistry in college and just wasn't ever in those realms. And, uh, and, and the, and the short, uh, this isn't short guys. <laughs> yeah the, uh, the the deeper that I went intellectually I, I guess I would say it this way um and, and this is a lot of stuff that even Paul has been talking about recently, like a lot of these um the deeper that I went, the more that I just saw the the shortcomings of a lot of the things that I end up talking about with Paul and on the discord of um, rooting your faith mainly <clears throat> in propositions and confessions and in your head and the disconnect that that sometimes would produce between, um, orthodoxy and orthopraxy and this lived reality. And there's all these discussions that can happen within the church. And I just kept seeing, uh, I I really just kept seeing, um, things that ended up not working in my experience at church and i would see people lose their faith and i would see people deconvert and i would see people deconstruct and all these deconstruction stories have been around for a long time and the more i studied i got really into one of the big things that happened is i was i'd listened to a lot of deconstructionists for a long for um a number of years like peter rollins and pete i listen to a lot the deconstructionist podcast with like michael Gunger and Science, Mike McHarg, and all those guys, um, yeah. the liturgists. Um, and and so I was hearing both these different sides. I got really into Rob Bell for a while, and um, like Paul and I would have, I don't know, Rob Bell is not who most people think he is. I, I'm a huge fan of Rob Bell. I like him quite a bit, um, which whatever, I always feel like putting out this caveat, like that doesn't mean that I just carte blanche agree with everything he says. but. Yeah. Um, but he's really not what most people think he is. Like a lot of people, Kathy Newman him, um, and very famously, John Piper was like, farewell, Rob Bell, when he wrote Love Wins. And, um, but I've listened to enough of his stuff, really, kind of almost in like a, very much in the way that Paul Vanderclay has listened to Jordan Peterson, and people will just reject Jordan Peterson offhand. But Paul understands his work. I think I have a degree of that, kind of with Rob Bell. Like I probably haven't gone that deeply, but I've read a lot of his books. I've listened to a lot of his podcasts. And so I was just always, I was reading, you know, I read Piper. I've read Piper and listened to more of his sermons than anyone probably I was reading Jonathan Edwards. I'm reading all these Puritans and reformers, but I'm also reading Pete Rollins and deconstructionists and Rob Bell. And I'm hearing Rob Bell mischaracterized and, um, just like pretty obviously blatantly and i'm starting to see that when i when i want to have discussions with people in my camp and in my leadership about these things that i'm seeing and and about people deconstructing and what i think's going on with that i'm just getting a lot of a lot of hesitancy a lot of uh and i've talked about some of my experiences just um I basically started to see what a lot of what Jonathan Haidt talks about, about religion, binding and blinding. And, um, I, I just started to see the, uh, what's the word like the glitches in the matrix and the, um, I started to see problems. I think that, that I knew other people weren't seeing and they weren't addressing. And then I started to become really doubtful that there was anything Well, maybe the way I could say it was this, that there was anything within the system. I I almost thought that I, I got to a point within evangelicalism that I said, I almost don't know if there is anything, if there are any tools or spirits or way of being within evangelicalism to correct, to correct itself. I almost feel like it's become so narrow and so you could think of it in like an Ian McGillchrist right brain left brain thing with like maps and territory and master and emissary because that's basically the cliff notes of what he's saying in that book is that in Western culture we have this lopsided left brain who is who thinks it's the master when it can actually never be the master because the master is is this is the space and the transcendent and the the almost ineffable. um, territory that that is too infinite to ever express in a map that allows for you to where that's where error manifests that lets you correct your maps and i almost feel felt like and i didn't have language for any of this but i could see it intuitively i was just like the maps are are too are too solid and and you can't and i experienced this through my through my trying to talk with leadership and things and there was just It's like, I just was like, I don't think they have anything within them that is able to, it's almost like they don't have the spirit to even be open to anything that I'm saying. And so it's like, I just don't think they're going to course correct. I don't think they can. And then that really started to, uh, it put me in a really bad mental place where, because, and I've said this to people, like church is probably in a way it's almost the most important thing to me even maybe more so it's almost like higher up in my hierarchy than even family because i think our marriage and familial bonds i think are a temporary thing the church is eternal um and so i started to get in this place of just real um real discomfort real unrest i just felt like i saw things that were really unhealthy and I didn't have a way to, and I feel like there was nothing I could do about it. And so then I found like the differences between apophatic and cataphatic theology, and that started getting me into the church. And I started to realize, Oh, there's this, that's probably really the, sh- the, the main thing that happened was the difference between like positive and negative theology where, which is really the difference between like mysticism and scholasticism. It's like talking about, god and theology in negative terms versus all these positive narrowing terms and so it's this it's this mystical space that's much more open to mystery which is a classic thing and i was like oh this whole branch of christianity is just like that's their that's just where they roll all the time and so then at that point because of my somewhat existential angst it was really due to my wife i was just so erratic and crazy all the time that it boiled over into our personal life and she was just like i can't like this something has to give like i can't have you this crazy all the time essentially and so at that point we really um we start we just started attending liturgies at the church where we've been going now and um and that process, I don't know this is kind of what we talked about beforehand, the process of converting to Orthodoxy is really um, there are prescriptions and there are ways to go about it. And you know, you be there are official sacraments and rituals that you participate in as part of that process, like becoming a catechumen, you're an inquirer for a while, you can become a catechumen, that process can last for a while and then officially you're, you convert, but like there's no the time frame, and and the and the personal way that that manifests for individuals can vary a lot, you know. So, yeah. I'm in that place right now. I guess I'm officially a catechumen. My kids are going to be baptized soon, but with COVID, that's been weird. Yeah. Um, so we're just in a place. But like you were saying, I'm I'm at a place where I just don't know. And part of this is really my temperament. This is what this is the last thing I'll say. And shut up, for a while and You can respond, but. <laughs> Um, I am at a place too, where I don't, I, I don't think I could go to an evangelical church. And part of that saddens me because, um, I've maybe said this to you. I don't think, I don't think the answer to the problems of our world or within Christianity or to endless schism and even violence and the breakdown of language, which I have a lot of thoughts about. I don't think (laughs) the answer is everyone being the same. The yeah. answer is love amidst difference. Yeah. And so I don't think the answer to the world is everyone becoming uh, confessionally and traditionally and propositionally Orthodox because number one, that's just not how people in the world work in traditions. Like it's not even it's not even something you can choose because ironically that would almost become like a Protestant individualist form of Orthodoxy, which isn't kind <laughs> of which would then maybe, I don't know. So like the answer isn't everyone becoming Orthodox, but just for me personally, I couldn't, I would have a very hard time within a church, at least within a a certain strain of church that really had a more authorian top-down propositional confessional bordering and and thought policing, even if it was the most well-intended and loving if i couldn't go to a church like that anymore whether it was on the right or the left like it would drive me crazy so and you just don't have that within orthodoxy broadly you could maybe find it within some churches but as a rule that's just not the way they roll
1: yeah i mean i think i think for me it's been a kind of similar experience but i think I mean, I grew up in non-denominational, sort of—I guess you would call them evangelical churches—and mm-hmm. um, I think where I really started to like grow in my—not that I didn't grow within those systems—I, I, I have a lot of respect for Protestantism because it, it it gave me um, a great foundation and it gave me a lot of support and help and so i can't ever say like anything too negative about protestantism yeah but what i found is when i so like when i left for college and moved to the bay area and i kind of did this couple year long experiment of like not going to church <laughs> mm. like i was still still christian still believe yeah. um in god and was doing my own practices but i'm like i've spent 21 years of my life in buildings surrounded by christians what does it mean to be the church outside of that and um, it was all kind of sparked by this conversation i had with um someone i worked with um uh, at the restaurant that i worked with at when i was in the bay area and he like it was so funny because it started off being very like i don't want to talk to you like he was like (laughs) i don't want to talk to you we were sitting eating dinner together i'm like that's fine and then he starts talking and somehow he gets on god and like religion and saying it's all like a crock Mm. and then he turns to me he's like what do you think i'm like (laughs) 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 i'm just like well and like we had this like really beautiful conversation where it was like we were both on opposite sides Mm -hmm. of this issue but like he was listening and in fact he was kind of learning and being like wow i've never heard anybody saying anything. That. and from then on it was just like okay there's something here i need to explore this and like be a christian but do it outside of a building and engage with my faith and so with him and other people in that restaurant it was just and in the bay area in general it was just being able to have kind of really open dialogues that were kind um which was i think nice to see because i don't think a lot of people out who don't live in the bay area they think it's something so different (laughs) like Mm -hmm. when i when i was moving to the bay area i remember i had people from my church being like be careful they're like crazy over there (laughs) it's like it always bothered me but it was always kind of like kind of cool to see it's not just this picture that you see of people screaming at each other although that does exist (laughs) but there's there's a lot of people who are open and so i took that with me to australia and when i was there it was finding like militant atheists who were willing to engage with me in a different way where they were still willing to listen, but it was much more, um, of a spar, I suppose. (laughs) And, you know, just seeing, seeing how all of these things and and listening to other people opened my mind and taught me more about my faith than I ever could in a church building. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, I'm having these experiences, but also realizing at the same time, I need church. Like I, there's something to that community, but like, um, you know, I I, I need to get back into that, but still hold on to this other piece that I found. And I had a really hard time coming back. Like for when I was in Australia, it was easier because I was, you know, I was bouncing around different denominations. I was trying to be open to that and kind of kind of break my categories of what it meant to be a certain denomination so it was sort of this experimental thing but when i came back home and started getting plugged into a church i i got plugged into a church where the core of all the things they said i believed in um but it when it came to the practice of how how we did those things within the community there was a lot of struggle and i think it was this category shift in me where it's like i've left this evangelical world and been a part of these other worlds and i have all of these like new lenses to look through what we're doing and it all just felt like not inauthentic but almost i don't know what the word is because i don't think the people there were being inauthentic but it felt like we were in this bubble where we were saying things that I don't think we really know what we were saying. Mm -hmm. Like, and not that, I mean like there's just words that evangelicals use and ways we talk that in the in-group, we get it. We understand what we're saying, Mm -hmm. but from the out-group it's like, it doesn't, it it sounds kind of like rhetoric. It sounds like empty words um so is that hard balance to be like I know that it's not and I know that these are genuine people (coughs) who are like trying to pursue faith but there's this part of me that to engage in the way that is culturally normal in those environments Mm -hmm. it's not it's not real to me it doesn't it doesn't actually like compute it would just feel like I was saying words and I'm not person who's just going to say words to say words like i want to say what i mean and know what i'm saying (laughs) and so it was a i think it was just a hard battle of like balancing that and trying to be open and learning from what that environment could bring but you know and and trying to embrace this idea of church because church is not always the most comfortable place and it's not supposed to be And it's supposed to grow you and you're supposed to love and accept no matter what. But it just, it just became this little nagging thing always behind me. I was always in church and there was always little nagging things. It's like, how do I, how do I make this uh, like authentic to me where I'm not just giving into the social pressures and like, I'm really making this a focus on like the pursuit of God and not the pursuit of God as the church prescribes me to do or suggests me to do in this sort of formulaic way. Right. And then, um, I think the breaking point for me was I went to Portland, um, to, for work. And while I was there, I went to a couple churches and I went to, um, door of hope, which was the church that, uh, Tim Mackey was the head pastor for a long time. And I went in, and it was the first time I went to a service in the longest time that, it, that I remember where I wasn't just bothered by everything around me. Mm. And it was like this moment where I, I always explain it like it was as if I was treading water. And then all of a sudden I realized I was in the shallow end of the pool <laughs> and I could stand up and breathe. <laughs> and it was just like, oh my gosh. Mm. And so it was like, okay, this thing that i'm fighting is more of a problem than i think but that doesn't mean i'm just going to abandon it like i'm just gonna keep doing what i've been doing but be open to the possibility of something else and i never really thought orthodoxy at that point like i would make jokes i would always talk to one of my best friends who still goes to that church and she'd always like listen to me talking through these struggles and I would always make this joke about like my journeys, like who knows by the end of this, and going end up Orthodox or something. <laughs> mm. But um, it was never like a real thing. I, I think I had just started hearing about it through the discord and through Paul's talks and people talking about it. And I, I mean, before that, I think I read in one book that I had some apologetics book about different religions and denominations. And there was like a section about Eastern Orthodoxy that was like a page and a half Mm -hmm. And like, that was the most exposure I really had. And so, you know, I start hearing more about orthodoxy and I start engaging with people who are orthodox and finally get to the point where I'm like, I just have to go, you know, I might as well just go. And I I had expectations of not liking it, but just being open to it. Because I have always had trouble with the sort of high church tradition or even some of these traditional, like the ways that evangelical churches will try to bring in some sort of liturgy by doing these weird like ritualistic prayers and stuff it never mm-hmm. said right so i'm like i don't think i'm like it but i'm open to it like let's do it and i walk into the church and it's just like this whole game changer where it was immediately like whatever's happening here everything has a purpose and a meaning mm-hmm. and i don't know it but i want to and, you know, after the, because I went to a Vesper service, and after the service, one of the priests came up to me and started talking to me, and, you know, realized it was my first Orthodox service ever, and started, started talking. And the first thing he said was like, well, what questions do you have? Which is so opposite of what most Protestant churches are. Well, we have the statement of faith, and let us tell you what we believe, and do you agree on that? where they were like hey what what do you want to (laughs) know I was like okay and just had this really awesome conversation where the answers didn't leave me wanting didn't leave me questioning it was like oh that makes sense and so it was after that where it was like okay I don't feel comfortable calling myself Protestant anymore and like I want to explore this and I've been to Protestant services since but it's just this like, it, there's something missing. There's mm. something empty. And it's it's sort of like this bittersweet thing where it's like, I'm sad, because there's so much that, um, that gave me that tradition gave me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I'm also really glad to not fight the battle I was fighting for so long of trying to break the categories of, of <laughs> what this evangelical church was. And seeing, like like you, seeing these issues and not totally knowing how to address them or talk through them. Um, a lot of that's gone. A lot of these deep questions and like, like, fights that I had within me are gone. Um, and that's like kind of a crazy thing, but then there is still a part of me. That's like this whole idea of embracing mystery is so outside of my comfort zone. Cause I am very much, I, I mean, I wouldn't say it was like hardcore theology. I enjoyed theology to a point, but I was very much interested in, um, the study of Christianity in a holistic way. Cause I think for me, it started experiential and then talking with people outside my faith just having to embrace these questions um that are difficult for people and trying to understand that and get to the place where it's like how do you you know how do i make sense of that for myself um so i i enjoy i well i love philosophy i feel like philosophy is my love (laughs) um more than like theology and that that sort of stuff and I think it just started because I, I needed to start there when I'm like tackling atheism. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, I've I love philosophy. I love the kind of apologetics enterprise to a point. I I love the the holistic round look of Christianity, and that that and that's still there in orthodoxy. Um, It's got a depth to it, but this embrace of the mystical, not my bag, it's not, (laughs) (laughs) which is crazy because I've had spiritual experiences, I've had things happen in my life that I can't account to myself and I can only account to something outside of me and I'm very comfortable with the idea, like the philosophical idea of miracles and this spiritual realm. Mm -hmm. but there's this duality in me that's also like but I don't want to claim that too much because I don't want to look like a mystic
0: yeah
1: it's um so it's a weird balance
0: yeah um man a lot of that I resonate with a lot of it like I almost I probably I almost like got emotional and started crying and I probably will just the when you were talking about the 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 freedom that I, that I experienced with an orthodoxy of like the stopping of the fighting, the internal fighting and the mental fighting and the struggle and how you were saying like treading water and you just had all these things and all of a sudden you just felt like you could stand. I mean, that was at the Mackey church, I guess, but also just within orthodoxy from what you said. Um, mm-hmm. it's, a uh, it's it's a really hard thing to articulate what it is. And it's not like you were saying, there is depth within orthodoxy. It's not as if they don't have theology and creeds and things they believe, which is often what people respond to me and say. But I think the real the way that I even the way that I would probably cage the mystery part of it is that um Like even and my priest quoted me this uh, when I met with him a while back, but it's true. Is Augustine said, you know, a doctrine is really just like a hedge around a mystery, and I think, um, I think it's almost, and especially when you get to like the a lot of the early creeds and a lot of the ecumenical doctrines of like everything that happened in the church prior to the schism. um, there are, there is theological precision there. I mean, we've realized a lot of that in all the Trinitarian conversations on Discord. Like, it's there's a lot of things that are there that are complicated that you can be worked out. But I think the thing that Orthodoxy has always retained and Catholicism to a big degree, and then I would say the equivalent or the, the Protestant equivalent of that would be Pentecostalism is the, and Paul talked about this recently, is the, the understanding of the spiritual nature of reality and what's under everything and really iconography in that. Cause really, uh, it's so funny because icons are so central within Orthodoxy. And I never, I never had any idea what icons were, but when you understand philosophically what icons are and why they're important is because they're, they are, it's representative of of not only God, but also the nature of reality, the ontology of everything. And I think what, what the truth of icons allows you to have, which is central to orthodoxy is you never conflate the, you never conflate your perception of the representation with the thing in and of itself. So like the icon is always the image that that you see, but it's all it's not only an image, it's a portal to something transcendent that's beyond that, that's ineffable. And so like this is where Peugeot will say the expression of the infinite is also infinite. <clears throat> and all of that flowed out of Trinitarian theology with God, with Jesus being the icon of the inexpressible God. But what Orthodoxy's always known is that everything is that way. Everything is an icon. We I mean we see We see everything iconically. This is why I talk about iconic vision a lot. And I don't think um, I don't think I think to a large degree that has been lost within Protestantism that truth and that's what leads them to I think Um Even, well, and we've talked about this. I mean, I actually think this is what's, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this recently and talking to people. I think that's what's going on right now in the world with the protests and the violence is that people don't understand that language are also symbols. Language is also an icon. Language is also an, what we say and what we profess and what we think and even our ideas are not these static, monolithic, simplistic things. They are are portals to like, it's a portal, language at its best is, is communion and it's a portal of two, two different things, sometimes opposite things, meeting and bridging. Like even when you were talking about, I thought of this exactly earlier when you were talking about when you left the church, when you were in San Francisco for a while in the conversation with the atheist, you know, and he could be really opposed, he was probably really opposed to religion ideologically and from a principled standpoint but when he spoke to you and he's like, what do you think about God? And when you guys were really communing and using language as a bridge and through and, and mediated by trust and love, those differences didn't matter. And, and, and you communed, that's what language is supposed to do. Yeah. But that's an iconic use of language. It's, it's not like, Oh, you're a Christian. I'm not a Christian. Boom. Hard stop like that's using language as a, as a mere blunt instrument and as a tool and as a, that's saying like this simplistic definition of Christian non-Christian is, is like a static idol and it puts you in this camp that's not my tribe and then I will fight you which leads to actual violence. That's what's happening right now in Minneapolis. Like what do you think about George Floyd? Which team are you on? I mean, it's, it's the, it's the breakdown of language and, and I think, I mean, I actually think that's endemic to the West. I think it's, I think it's something that we, um, and like you said, I love, I love a lot of my Protestant upbringing and it gave me a good base. And, and it's, it's not an intentional thing. It's not that Protestants are inauthentic it's not that there aren't a lot of really great things within Protestantism, but I almost think of it as like Christianity is a tree. And I don't even think it's merely as like a metaphor as a tree. It's like, I think Christianity is a tree, you know, like revelation that will, that will be for the, and the leaves will be a blessing for all the nations that symbolism in the book of revelation, like the body of Christ is a tree and and it's almost within like the endless schisming of protestantism you're at these very disparate edges of the branches but as you go back down to the trunk which is connected to the roots and the soil which is which is god which is christ you you get you get the expression of all this infinite array but in like one thing which is orthodoxy which is why it feels so deep and rich um and uh and i don't know it i it's a lot to say but it's but it's more just like that i i resonated with the the depth of the of the of the liturgy and the feeling of going to a service even though it was completely foreign and alien to me um it just felt I don't know, I said it to a pr- my priest once, um, actually, so Father John Baer has been discussed quite a bit, but he came to lecture in Minneapolis, and I actually was, w- when he went to lecture, I was riding around in the car with my priest and him, and and, uh, and we were just talking, and I was telling him I was a convert and stuff, or going to be, and and he was asking me about what you know why that was, and what I liked about with orthodoxy, and I was trying to explain it. And as I often try to struggle to articulate myself and, uh, (laughs) the priest, my priest said something like it's, um, he essentially said that, like, you feel, you feel free and, and it's true. Like it's, it's, um, I don't know. I often talk about like subjectivity and objectivity and, um, and I, and I feel like that's what orthodoxy has. Is orthodoxy allows you to participate in your faith in a way that is subjectively honest, that doesn't ask you to constantly be lying to yourself and splitting about what you think about things to get into line to a place where you're not, which leads to all this deconstruction, schisming, and people leaving because it's asking. It's essentially saying like, get in line and if you don't get in line you have to leave or you have to lie about being in line but it allows you to to simultaneously have personal conviction but yet submission to to the transcendent to the to the church at large and you can do those things both without without conflict and that's so that probably seems ridiculous to Like if, if I tried to say that and explain that to people in my family, for example, or to a lot of Protestants, they would just be like, that doesn't even make sense. Like you're just, you're just saying words that have no meaning like word salad.
1: It's so funny you say that because I think I've always been fascinated by, um, the way words carry weight with people. So Mm -hmm. I, when I started college, I started as a communications major. And um I took this well, there's two classes that I took at community college that sort of have been so helpful to me in that, this understanding of how we speak and how to communicate with others. The first one was this inner I did a international communications course where, you know, we talked about basically understanding different cultures and how to communicate and the differences between those. And we did this exercise where um she wrote a bunch of words on the board, like love, um, war, mm. you know, justice, whatever. And when it came to the word justice, or, or what we were supposed to do is um, rate how we felt about those words personally, like positive or negative. And then she would say the word and ask, okay, who thought positive, who thought negative? And when it came to the word um justice everybody else in the class thought about it positively but i had a sort of negative response Mm -hmm. and i i I, at the time i had a i had a hard time understanding why like why was it and i was i was too ashamed to even admit that i had a negative response to it but Mm -hmm. when she kind of talked through it she's like we all bring baggage to these words and like as we're talking through it for a lot of people it was like justice is this beautiful thing it's like correcting wrongs but in my head when i heard the word justice it wasn't the way that i saw it wasn't fixing wrongs it was getting revenge Mm. and pushing this this word that was pushed to this thing to um try to fight this anger that's in us um in a ne- in a negative way and and since then i've had this whole re-understanding of the word justice and what that means and especially from sort of the biblical stance so i have a much better relationship with the word but that was the first thing that kind of got me to say oh okay we can be saying the same words but feeling different things and this whole yeah. idea that words have meaning but we give or well she she in the class said words don't have meaning we give words meaning which i don't totally believe i think words have meaning but we also give them meaning right And we bring on our personal baggage yeah and then um maybe a year later i took a philosophy course and we were talking about the whole idea of words and how words themselves aren't anything like you take um (laughs) i always (laughs) i always like to use like the c word because in australia i I learned a lot about that word because you take that word, the C-U-N-T, like the mm-hmm. word itself, those letters strung together yeah, don't actually mean anything, but when you take it in the context of cultures, it does have meaning. And like, even outside of that, like when you're comparing two different cultures in America, that word is the most offensive thing you can say. And if it leaves your mouth, you're a disgusting human being. Right. That's not the same in Australia. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's like, um, like something different, you know, mm-hmm. like it can be used that way, but it's not as demoralized. And I remember, yeah. you know, being called that and it's like <laughs> the first time I was, was like, Oh, and like the guy who was calling me that was being like, like yeah. I was a pal, like I yeah. made it like that Such was a good con. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, at first I was like, Oh, don't call me that. And he was just right. like, Ah, you cut. Like, <laughs> um, like after that it was sort of like, okay, it's fine. Like and I expired yeah. because it, it just was like, that's not what he's meaning. He's not meaning to be offensive. Right. And so I think when I took that into this religious space when I was first going to church and I was saying these things, um, they meant something to me and it was authentic. Yeah. Until I got outside of my culture, saw the holes and all of the things that i was doing and went back in and it didn't mean the same right and the words to leave my mouth while they were genuine for somebody else they weren't genuine for me they just felt like um like niceties or
0: yeah platitudes um,
1: just, yeah platitudes um and it was i think that was the hardest thing to adjust um to um being back in church and i don't really feel that same way in orthodoxy um but it it is funny the person who actually got me to actually step into a church the way that he talked about orthodoxy i didn't like Mm. like and it wasn't i don't know what it was but it was like i it was like i always compare it to like the way that sometimes in the comments esther and Job would go back and forth where esther would say these things and Job would be like i don't know what you're saying <laughs> don't get it and it was like that where it's like i hear you and you're saying these words but i don't get it like yeah and you just keep saying the words but i don't get it right I'm not wrong but you know which
0: i think yeah a quick aside which i think is part of why the the discord and the paul vanerclay community has worked so well is that i think it it was full of because this is this is the problem that happens i think over time like what you were saying is words that are authentically spoken become become empty and they lose their it's almost like they lose their vitality through overuse and, and they become meaningless. But when you bring in someone from a different culture, like when you have a job and an Esther and they have to talk and they have to meaningfully talk in like a communion way, not just lobbing bombs at each other to win. But if they're really trying to connect each other, you just be like, I don't know what you mean by that. Like, you could say that to me all day or like, I was going to bring up this example earlier. I was talking to a friend recently from <clears throat> from kind of a pre- previous church iteration and a previous church culture and he was talking about uh just experience of things that have been going on and all and all these different things and he and they kept using this um this illustration of of how how all this has just been opening them up to realizing their lack of faith and their lack of just casting everything on the Lord. And they, and they kept using this phrase of casting everything on the Lord and, and talking about, uh, relational dynamics with other people and, and saying this person is struggling. Well, that's cause you're not casting it on the Lord. And, and so it became, it was this kind of a, it was a very much a platitude type of a language. And, and so I just, in that situation, I even intentionally tried to ask of of kind of like in a Joe way of just be like, I don't know what you mean by that. Like when you say you're not casting things on the Lord, like what does that mean? What are you saying like you're not you're not like praying about it enough? Or you're not or you're not, you know, like uh unpack that for me really. That's another thing they become like unpack it. What does that mean? But, but I think I always think of that NT Wright has this great um section from his book scripture and the authority of god where he says a lot of modern discourse about theology has has basically devolved into people taking theological categories and theological words which are really like suitcases which are full of like verses and history and and development to get these things to where they are and but it's he said modern discourse is just devolved into people walking around hitting themselves with hitting each other with suitcases. And he's like, maybe what we should do with these suitcases is open them up, unpack them, try them on, see if some of them need washed, maybe they need ironed, like figure out what we're saying, unpack these platitudes, unpack these shorthands so that we can actually communicate. Because, because that's what, that's actually a really good um, picture illustration of what I'm talking about of the two different kinds of dialogue. One is identitarian dialogue, where you're just hitting each other with suitcases. Like it's a means to an end. Like, I don't need to unpack this suitcase. Me and you, and most of most of even the person who's wielding the suitcase doesn't know what it means. Like most of the knowledge and what's in there, they probably forgotten. It's like the, It's like the bulk of the iceberg that's submerged. They don't even know what it means. But like, they're just, but they know it's right. And they know the people that don't have that suitcase are wrong. Yeah. And and both sides are just hitting each other, and it leads, when language is used that way, it will always resort in violence. It has to, you don't, you can't, what else is there? Like Jordan Peterson talks about that. He's like, when you disagree with someone, you can be a tyrant, you can be a slave, or you can talk about it. But when talking about it doesn't work anymore, when language has devolved to where you can't bridge, and you're not really trying to understand and grow and evolve and figure out some unforeseen thing that neither of you could reach on its own, like dialogos, what Verbeke talks about, all you have is slaves and tyrants. It's all you have. So, I can't remember where we started on this. I started going off, but um, it's a, uh, I don't know, I it's it's really hard for me. I start to get like emotionally um antsy and i I start to get really uncomfortable and really and i can get really aggressive when i'm around people when i start to get into cultures that i feel like are doing that a lot like i revolt like i want out of there i like i have no interest in that and then people and then people start accusing me like this can happen sometimes people on the discord will start accusing me of that and it'll be like you just think you're right and i'm just like i'm not playing that game like i'm i don't want to do this with you like i'm gone
1: yeah i mean um, it's it's such a hard thing because i am so about dialogue with those i don't disagree with and the way that it can expand our minds yeah but i'm also aware that like it's okay to think you're right like, sure you know it's okay to be in a conversation where both people think they're right the problem comes when you're unwilling to let that go. You know, because there's gonna be tons of conversations from people with very different beliefs. You're gonna have a very productive conversation, and both people are gonna leave with the same beliefs. Right. And that's okay. But it's it, the only way to progress and really understand what's true is to be able to do that and be able to stand for what's right. And I think sometimes we can get in our own ways where we're we're holding on to right things for emotional reasons because it's this little blanket right and that's not good and like we have to we can lie to ourselves and that's tough but
0: but this is almost more like this is where i think like back to what i was saying about the iconic of understanding language as an icon is that like where i would agree with you is of course everyone thinks they're right that's what it is to have a conviction or to hold an opinion i mean you you think you're right which is why you think that way but if you don't understand that your opinion and your right thinking isn't absolute isn't an icon that's that is an image but also looking at something infinitely inexpressible because it's too there's there's too much information to 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 get it all in here as like an accurate one-to-one you can't do that it's just that's not the way that we perceive reality it really it really comes into and this is where i love jordan peterson again it's a modernist Postmodernist critique, and this is where I t- was talking on the Discord of like, we don't the nature of our perception. This is why I like Barfield so much, is is not we don't perceive facts and objects. That's not how our mind works. We see like you don't see a hole, you see a falling off thing, a falling off potential. Or Jordan Peterson will say like you don't see a chair, you see a sitting potential because he says what makes what makes us what's common like why is a futon a beanbag, a chair or a stump or a tripod or someone's knee why are they all sitting things it's not because you know facts and objects about them it's because you see phenomenologically you see potential and and that i mean that is but that's really important to the nature of your perception because if you if you're a modernist and you live in this world of facts and objects and right and wrong in this really dualistic, simplistic way that doesn't understand iconography, yeah, then you can, then you can constantly sit on your high horse and just be like, I just, I love because I love the facts and you're wrong and those are the wrong that you, you don't understand the, the bridging trinitarianness of what language is. Right um bec- because you you'll constantly be you you can always rationalize if, if you believe your map is reality yeah you can rationalize to all day yeah. long <laughs> that everything you're doing is for the right reasons and the right facts and the right logic i mean that's what sam harris does all day mm-hmm. there's christian versions of sam harris because i because the bible believes that that settles it I love people. You're running to a cliff, so it's a loving thing to stop you and to legislate it and make you do the right thing. That's called antichrist. You're call, you're use, you're acting in a way that is antithetical to Christ and calling it Christ, with the best of intentions.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean that was I think one of the the biggest hardships it, I had with some of the evangelical movement because I I went on a sort of evangelical like mission trip to kind of understand it more <laughs> Love and um you know we would go out on college campuses and ask people religious idea questions to get them starting and a lot of them i was really uncomfortable with and you know at the end we would say do you want to know what is true can we tell yeah. you what is true mm-hmm. and it's like that's Fine, like I'm glad that you want to share what you believe is true yeah. so I would always talk to kind of people on a trip and be like okay let's say we run into a couple Mormon missionaries and we're sitting across the table from each other and they want to share with us what they think is true and we want to share with them what they think is true and those two things are not the same how do we get to the point where we're you know we're coming to an understanding about what's true, and how do we think they're gonna listen to us if we're not even able to listen to them?
0: Just have the right facts.
1: Yeah, it's like, at a certain point, it's like, you can say, this is what the Bible says, but there's a lot of diversion of what people think the Bible says. You can't just, you can't, I don't think it's the best way to approach people, and it's all well-intended, I think, if you believe what you believe as a Christian and this, especially if you're not like a universalist, but you believe that people's souls are in the balance. I get why you go out and do everything you could to help people find God. Right. But sometimes it feels like it's like, oh, we make a lot of friends and then we bring some to church and then we make disciples. And it's like, are you just meeting people to like save them? Cause nobody wants that. Like you should just meet people where they're at to meet them independent of whether they're going to come to church or not and love them. And like, you shouldn't just be so willing to throw out what you're going to believe if you're not going to sit and listen to them too. Like, yeah. And that's where that nuance we think is missing. And you, you talk about deep conversions and like people like to talk about I, my sister just sent me a video about some, I guess the, one of the guys from Hawk Nelson is deconverting and this girl, Hawk Nelson, it's a band, it was like a, it was like a (laughs) punk pop Christian band back in like the early 2000s and Mm. then their lead singer left and now it's become sort of like what every Christian song is. Oh. But I I used to be a really big fan of them when they were like pop punk. (laughs) Mm. Um, But they're not anymore. So I've walked away. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, anyways, the lead singer, the new lead singer walked away from his faith. And this Mm. woman made a video about apologetics and how it's so important and it needs to be brought in the church. And I'm sitting and I'm like, yeah, I'm with you on a lot of this, but that's not the whole issue there's so much more and there's so much deeper. And like you look at the Rhett and Link thing, apologetics was a big reason Rhett left.
0: Right. Well, let's, I mean, so this is just what I'm thinking. We could break that down a little bit, right? Is apologetics are really important in the church. And the assumption is, is that if, if this, if Rhett and Link or if this guy um, had the right apologetics, the right information, he wouldn't leave because like, because really what, what our faith is dependent on is having the right knowledge and the right information. Um, and also I would add probably just like abstracted facts, divorced from an embodied life, which, I mean, no one, no evangelical, if you asked them that, or if I cage it that way would say, no, that's true. They would say, of course, you have to have it engaged in your life. But, apologetics and the focus on apologetics is very much just about the right information and it's arguing your faith and giving everyone should be prepared to give in this defense mm-hmm. um but again that that's that's a modernist perspective that's viewing the world as facts and objects and i would say that's that's divorced from the kind of incarnational embodied use of it's using language as a tool to get your perceived ends It's not using love, which is something there's, um, yeah, it's using, so I jumped somewhere else before I finished my sentence. (laughs) (laughs) It's using, it's using language to get, to get what you think. So it's like, you have, you have the map, you have the right information, you have the right knowledge, and I'm going to use language to get, to try to get them here to see my map because it's the right map and it will get us going where we want. But the problem is, is again, you don't know, you don't know that that's a hundred percent true. And if you have, I've been really thinking about, and I posted this in the discord, but the uh, Paul Vanderclay's last conversation with Brett Sockold about, the title of it is about um, conspiracy theories, but there's a section at the beginning from about, I think it's from about five minutes to eight minutes where Brett talks about, um, talks about engaging people in good faith, essentially like understanding that everyone has every it's coming at it from the faith, which he said Aquinas had, or from the stance that he said Aquinas had, which is that everyone is, everyone is trying to, I wrote all this down somewhere, but I don't have it here. Probably. Everyone is trying to, everybody wants to say and believe true things and is trying to, and there's a, and there's a huge spectrum of how well people are able to do that with their abilities and articulations, or even their own sin is blinding it and stuff. But it's just, it's basically assuming good faith and that everyone is trying to do the right thing, no matter how broken that is. And so instead of, instead of engaging someone with like, a it's engaging, it's engaging someone in a posture of like, of, of trying to see all the good things. Like, what are you trying to say? Like, even if you're not saying it perfectly well, what truth are you trying to point at? and i think it's a really good exercise that's the that's the kind of bridging use of language rather than just trying to win an argument you know um and i think that's what the church really needs to recover because i don't <laughs> it's kind of like the conversation that you had with the atheist at the restaurant and a lot of these people they haven't I don't think anyone and paul models this so well which again why i think this community works is that no one people don't want to be condescended to and i don't even think that's necessarily stemming from pride maybe some of it is but like people don't want when you talk to someone like i know all the right answers and you don't know any of the right answers and you need to just if you just cause we can basically act that way in the world. Like if you just knew the things that I know in my head, you'd see things the way that I see them. And then we would cease to have this conflict. Like that's really arrogant. Yeah. Um, And I think people, they're just rightly repulsed by that. And that's kind of like the, it's what's underneath a lot of that, I think.
1: Yeah, I think my biggest, frustration with the apologetics is this sort of winning and losing attitude and even just the i mean it it extends outside of apologetics i think it can include sort of the the political climate as well it's not really about coming to solutions and understanding what we can know from the world which is super important and i think can be gathered from apologetics but it's a winning and losing debate and we have to win, you know, for what, you know, I'm sure each side has a different perspective of why they have to win, but you know, for the, for the right side of history, if you will. Right. The
0: good guys, it's good guys, bad guys. Yeah. You know, it's it's, yeah.
1: yeah. I think that's frustrating where I can look at apologetics and say, Hey, there are so many things that I didn't know about the world that give me this holistic picture and make it, make it, I guess, easier to believe in God and not feel like it's a shot in the dark. Like, it's not just this thing that I believe and I want it to be true, so I will it to be true. I think there is, when I look at the world, I do see, you know, the lens that makes the most sense as a lens with God. Yeah. Based on the evidence, but I wouldn't, I don't know if I would call myself an evidentialist in that kind of apologetics way where I think that's and all be all I think for me it's just this other proof this other this other surrounding help to move me towards truth right um, I, well and I, I, I
0: would agree yeah I would I would affirm all that like I don't um so one of my favorite quotes that I often go to is from this book by Nate Wilson um which is probabilities or the profits of a mechanical God, um, which I think is very true. Um, I think if you think about terms and think if you think about truth and reality and things in terms of probabilities, you have a inherent smuggling of a mechanistic understanding of the nature of reality and God, which I think is dangerous. But but I do think there is more. I, don't know, I also like to say, evidence is in the eye of the beholder. Because I think that's also true, which I think COVID is showing us that too, is that science is not like this objectivist enterprise, uh, the data. There is no such thing as just like, oh, if you have all the facts, you just see it this way. Like again, that's not the way the world is. So but that doesn't mean that I don't think there's a lot of good reasons to believe in God. Of course there is. But then also at the same time, having all those reasons and even intellectually affirming all those Christian those reasons does not a Christian make, and yeah. so I think I think you have to realize that too. It's just like even the demons believe in shudder. Like there's nothing wrong with with um, talking about all those things, but a lot of my concern, and I've had these conversations with Job quite a bit, probably to his annoyance, is that I think an overemphasis on apologetics and reasons and facts and everything is feeding into the cycle it's feeding into the whole pattern which i think is the problem with the with the western christianity which is feeding into the intellectual modeling side of the mind that then doesn't ever allow for that kind of open space to to see other things and reflect it's it's kind of a another way you could think about it is a balance of masculine and feminine like there's nothing wrong with conquering territory and mapping and narrowing thing which is a very spiritually masculine thing but you also have to you know or planting fields forever but then you also need sabbath rest and you need to let the land lay fallow and you have to let you have to let things um even rotating crops or anything like you have to mary cohan just did a great video on this talking about the joe salatin rogan podcast about masculine, and feminine, and husbanding the earth. And Salatin was using all this language of of like we need to like caress and love the earth. Like he was using these very sensual things. But like I think it's it's true. Like you gotta have you have to have that balance of the kind of conversational energy that doesn't think that that views language iconically that doesn't think that you objectively have all the answers and the other person doesn't that's just constantly motivated by conversionism like i need to make you me is feminine that's a feminine energy it's an open and receptive energy and uh i don't know it's just it's interesting that protestants compared to catholics and orthodox just uh don't don't have a very, very big focus on and venerate Mary too. you know, I mean, and whatever. like, I mean, you can, people will automatically get upset at that and like dogmatically want to argue whether or not you should, but I'm just, I'm talking more largely about feminine energy.
1: So I, now that we're talking about the masculine feminine, I actually, I was a friend of mine was talking to me about evangelical culture and he said that He felt like evangelical had a very feminine energy to it. And I didn't know how I felt about that. What's your thoughts on this whole, like,
0: well, I think that it's mainly, well, I mean, people have said that a long time. The evangelical church is kind of run by, uh, women in a way, almost interestingly, even ones that like maybe have like don't, aren't egalitarian in ways, but like, it's, it's, uh, the women are the ones that want to go to church who kind of make the decisions, who drag the men along. And it is a very, people will talk about that. Like it's a feminized culture, but, but not in the way I would say a lot of, yeah, biological females, I'm talking about like spiritual energy, which is almost, which isn't completely different from biology, but like it's, um, there there is a way where you could um like for example you could really push for female pastors and preachers within the evangelical church which people do and they have this whole debate of complementarian versus egalitarian and can there be female priests and pastors but doing that and arguing for it and fighting about it is is a masculine energy Like that's not a, that's not a feminine thing to do. Or like Peugeot talks about this all the time, like, um, Marvel comics, superhero books, or like Wonder Woman or Captain Marvel or something, or like Charlize Theron in some new action movie, like beating up a bunch of dudes. That's not femininity. That's like a woman acting incredibly masculine and you're calling it female empowerment. Like, it's it's an inverted, it's like an inverted world where you're calling like this, you're calling equality, again, sameness, when that's not really what equality is. You could have equality without sameness. Like, a woman doesn't have to be masculine to be equal. Right. You know, and so, and I think, I think even evangelical culture is dominated by a lot of women. I, I would not say that it's dominated by a female energy at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, that- it's, it's interesting, because I, I can see what he's saying to a point, you know, where it's, especially in some of these more Pentecostal traditions, where it's like, you feel the Holy Spirit, and the, you know. That maybe
0: is more so, like, ones that are truly, but then that almost border, but then that can border on, like, an unhealthy, almost chaotic energy. So, like, yeah. instead of, like, a a healthy openness it's like a chaotic openness which is a female thing too like right there's healthy and unhealthy versions of both of those of masculinity and femininity
1: yeah oh for sure so in that part i'm like okay that makes i i can see that sort of thing and there is a point where with evangelicals it is more women than men whereas orthodoxy if i'm heard right is more male Central. Converts.
0: Converts definitely are. I don't know the church at large, if it's more, if there's more men or women, but definitely people who convert are, are men more often.
1: Yeah, this sort of um, this energy that lies within the evangelical culture that's focused on the, the theological debates and the apologetics, mm-hmm. those things to me is so masculine. It's such right. A- masculine energy that it just depends on what what side you're focusing on i don't see it as either i think it depends on your your culture
0: right um right yeah i don't it's a, <clears throat> i've even um so something i've talked about before is even like within evangelical culture you have even a, you have this phenomenon a lot of times where you can have conservative churches and then a lot of people end up leaving that church and they go and start another church because they di- the divide over an issue. Like the Methodists are doing now with like LGBTQ affirming stuff or not. And then, so they'll say like, no, we're not affirming. And so then this, this side will splinter off and be like, okay, we're affirming. Um, but both of those, a lot of times end up being, um, very masculine energies because it's like, we want to impose, our will and our understanding of this doctrine, and our battery was
1: about to die. Oh, sorry.
0: Okay. Um, but I would say both of those are both of those are masculine energies, you know, um, or even you can see this in American politics, like conservative and liberal. I would say so. In like psychological terms, just avoid the conservative and liberal labels that we use all the time in America, but like true conservatism and true liberalism in the broad sense is like conservative are the people who they want to like keep and conserve whatever is there. And it's a very masculine energy. And the liberal of people are the people that see the open and the potential and want to change and evolve. And it's a feminine energy, but in American politics or even in evangelical churches, those two things are really, I had this conversation with Joey. My conversation with Joey on the Randos channel is I say in a mod, in modern American politics though, liberals, aren't really liberal. They're just conservatives. They're veiled conservatives. They just have different values. They're not really liberal because liberals like truly liberal people are anarchists. I mean, essentially like they're just, or libertarians, you know, they're like, leave people alone. Don't tell them what to do like there's this Tolkien quote. I always love to throw at people where he's just like my political leanings tend more and more toward anarchism where it's like No man is fit for the position of bossing around other men, especially the kind of man who would seek the position, you know, like leave people alone. Like what makes you think that you see so clearly is to tell everybody else what to do. Um, That's what being liberal is and right. so liberal is not wanting to control and manipulate and coerce everybody else through legislation but yeah. but that's not what either side is doing they're both conservatives they just have different right. values
1: well and it's funny because i because i i think you're right when you're talking about libertarian that is more of a liberal viewpoint than than i would say what our modern liberal is
0: Well, they're not at all. Right. They're showing themselves being like that Benjamin Boyce tweet or whatever that Paul put about, like, where all this social justice people are around. Do you see it where they're all like around in a circle holding their hands up and they're just like repeating after these mantras, after like the person who's running it, like, I can't even remember what they all were, but like, and his tweet was something like, remember when I told you this is a religion? And I mean, it looks, it looks, I mean, they're reciting creeds you know that's what they're doing it's not and yeah. that's a that's a conservative that's a conservative thing that they're doing um and so i don't know it's a that's where like tolerance if you if you proclaim tolerance but then you use tolerance as really a, a veiled means of being intolerant you're not really yeah. liberal then yeah and that's, really a,
1: that's a word that i've had to Uh, unpack and remove baggage from because this idea of tolerance of like being accepting of varying beliefs is a great thing but that's not how it's used it's it's weaponized to say believe the set of values that we believe are right or Mm -hmm. get the hell out right and that's not Tolerance at all, and I don't agree with that. And
0: right, um, or it's tolerance for a point, like we'll be tolerant as long as you eventually get on board. But, like, that's exactly what, um, in like when uh, Sam and Jeff and I talk about Rhett and Link, like, that's what conservative churches do is like we're tolerant of people with different beliefs for a while until they're on the right road, right? As long as you're on the right road, and as long as you're eventually going to end up here, we're tolerant well I, I mean it's the same thing like it's it, they're both they're both very masculine conservative energies and that's why i mean that's why i would say a little that going back like i think the west is plagued by a hyper masculinity a hyper left brain i mean it's you can't the lopsided left brain we're like again and there's nothing wrong with left brain thinking it's great it's part it's half of our brain for a reason you know like it's good you need it it's just not the master, and if it starts to behave like the master, you get the problems that we're having.
1: Right. Um, yeah, I and mean, th- any good thing taken to its ex- extreme is a weakness.
0: Yeah, and I mean, then that gets into like that's to bring it all back to orthodoxy. Like, I just I don't think because <clears throat> this is where a lot of times people will say like orthodoxy has creeds, orthodoxy has propositions, orthodoxy has left brain thinking. Yeah, they do, but not in the way that the west does which is why i i would say i've i felt that freedom there like i could stop all the discomfort of the of that spirit of unrest or whatever that that it was producing in me just it really did like a light switch just went away And I mean, and a bunch of people won't have that experience. And like I, we said earlier, too, like I don't think the answer is everyone to become Orthodox because it's not that easy. Like it's just, it's yeah. a. There's this Cormac McCarthy quote I always like to quote, which I won't. I always say I should commit it to memory and I never do, but it's essentially like the traditions and cultures that shape a man are like it's these guys riding horseback through this country and he's saying, like, our are like what shaped these hills and many winds and seasons and rains and things shaped them. And they're not easily come by otherwise. Like you just, the idea that you can just, I think it's, it's a little, it's a little, probably foolish to just think like, Oh, I can just, I can just change my religious tradition and culture. I mean, maybe, and maybe, maybe that's your, like, it's not an either or I'm not, you know, it depends. Like, I think you have to tell the truth and pay attention to things that make you feel weak. And if that's what you need to do, do it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's just a lot of factors in, in the whole idea of, I mean, for a long time, just this whole idea of even being a member at a church, sort of, Didn't make sense to me. It's like, why do I need to sign a paper to say that I'm a member if I'm Mm -hmm. acting and living as if I am? Like, I'm a part of the community, whether it's recorded on a piece of paper or not. Yeah. In some ways, I feel that about orthodoxy. It's like, if I'm part of this community and you know, I'm I'm trying to practice and follow God in the way that I can. Why? Why do I need to convert? I, I think the biggest thing for me for converting would to be, to be able to participate in the full way.
0: Yeah.
1: but I don't want to, I don't want to do that to take it lightly. I think there's, you know, plenty of people who say, oh, I'll get baptized in Christian churches so I can take communion, but it doesn't mean the right thing to them where it's like, I want to do the right thing. But I mean, it comes with, it comes with trade-offs, you know, I think, I think if it's the right thing to do i'm obviously going to do it independent of whatever inconvenience it it could cause but there's just a lot it just changes a lot of the way that i would live my life in a way that i wouldn't have lived as a protestant Hmm. You know and i think I, I think especially when we're you know we're having all these discussions about like marriage and all um all of that conversation, and i've kind of gotten to the point where it's like I don't think I'm actually better off alone, and I have to start thinking seriously about the idea of marriage because like I'm getting older, especially in Christian communities, and like hmm. you got to figure that out but there's this responsibility of like, you have this huge question mark of something that could be the most important thing. Well, which is mm. the most important thing to you, but could totally change your way. And if yeah. I'm Orthodox, it's not, I'm not going to handle the same way as if I would have when I was Protestant. Cause Protestant's a little, you know, more, it's like, okay, there's all these denominations and we can find a balance and whatever, but Orthodoxy is a very different lifestyle. And if I choose to convert, that's gonna be something i want and like there's it's not like there's a responsibility to get that in order before you even consider this whole idea of bringing someone else into the picture yeah you know it's fresh like it's a it's a frustrating thing where it's like i want to figure it out in the right time um and I, i think i will but there's there's always that pressure in the back burner of like well you know making that decision it it closes a lot of doors or it you know rearranges things and so it's um it's just something that I have to manage (laughs) Um, but it's not it's not a huge worry but I I just would never want to be like I hear people who talk about you know converting and their partners not on board or wanting to convert, like, just even Nathan Jacob's story of yeah. having to wait seven years—that—that's not something I would want. <laughs> and like, so yeah. I think it's that's just such a hard thing to think about.
0: Yeah, you know, I think I think the grace. Well, so I have a. I'm wondering about your the church that you've been going to, but then also I think just the encouraging thing for you, I would say, from my perspective, and because you know obviously i'm a convert after i was married and um and i don't even know if technically i'm a convert yet catechumen and working through all those dynamics with my wife and my kids and everything has been i mean it's been fine and it's been good but i wouldn't say it's like gone off without a hitch it's um it's kind of a it's it's always been something that i'm more interested in and just naturally and my wife has gone along with it but it's but it's been a um it's always felt a little like there's all these things that i'm studying and learning and wanting to be involved in whereas like i'm kind of always the one driving it which is different than my wife and so that has its own difficulties too but where i would encourage you is that no matter how no matter if it's nathan jacobs situation or my situation or your situation or anything is that there's always. I think really the, and this doesn't mean there's not wisdom and things to be thought about beforehand, but I think there's this really great grace about Christianity that's just like if you're really, I, know, I like to talk a lot about purifying your eye and getting the unified, iconic vision, or like the Bible talks about the divided man, and I think about like ceasing to lie is like unifying your division where you're like, which is essentially like not my will but your will. Like, I think that's what Christ was doing is like Christ never had a, he never had a divided will. Like he was always in the will of the father. And that's what a Christian's job is. And I think if you're doing that, like for you, for example, is that, and this is why I love the simplicity of tell the truth or at least don't lie. If, if you through prayer and discernment realize like this is what you should do. And this is where you feel free and this is what you need to do. Um, i think it really allows you to live in a place of the peace that passes understanding so like all those other factors and things that you're thinking about it's not that they're they're not things that you should think about but really your job is to like discern discern what is the right action for you right now and the future will take care of itself i mean and i don't i know that could probably sound flippant
1: (laughs) Yeah, I know. You know. Yeah, I don't. I don't take it as flipping. I know you don't mean it that way. Um, I think for me, it's just a battle because I've been in the dynamic where I, as the woman, am the one who's more eager to search and learn and grow, Mm. and um, it's a it's a bad dynamic. (laughs) Like it, it it really is in a way that it's especially when like you talk about the complications of submission and how that all works and it's not it it drove me insane yeah. to be that one and feel like i'm pulling someone along right. so for me i know that like i need to figure out my stuff on my own but mm-hmm. you know i when it when it comes to that like that's going to be figuring that out is going to be a huge factor in that moving forward and finding that like that adversary.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: If, if he's out there, if he exists, <laughs> you know,
0: do, um, so at the place that you've been attending liturgies or going and things or vespers or whatever, attending services, are there, what kind of a church is it? Is it a small church or are there are there dudes there?
1: Uh, I mean, there's, there's guys there. I think it's a lot of an older community. Uh, it's actually funny the the last time I went because I hadn't been going because it's been closed yeah. but uh, the one younger single guy who was there chased me out of the church and like was like hey how, how are you like hi nice to meet you and I'm like but I I'm at a point where it's like I'm not looking for that right now I've got a million yeah. not just religious things to figure out but a million other Personal things that I need to get in order before I yeah. feel comfortable bringing someone else into my life. But I'm also like, there's also a part of me that's like, I'm I want to move to Portland, <laughs> mm. and like the whole idea. And my plan was to do it at the end of this year, but it might be extended now just because of COVID and everything and just right time, but. um And and maybe this is selfish of me, but I don't like the idea of getting involved and and being tied down to something in some place I don't want to be. Yeah, yeah. And so I, and and that may just be selfish, but that that's part of it too. Where it's like, it's not, but but to the the church is somewhat small. I wouldn't say it's tiny, but it's a lot of older people, a lot of married people, which I'm totally okay that's not yeah, really yeah. where my head's at i'm more i'm more like let's let's figure out the religion first before yeah. you like try to wife yourself up you know
0: like, <laughs> <laughs> it's probably i don't know the 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 comical like fawnish jokester in me just thanks god too and his timing and his humor is it would be a very godlike thing for you to say all that and just be like you know, i'm not ready for that and i need to finish out yet and i need to do all this and then all of a sudden like it'll just happen because <laughs> it's it reminds me of that you know like man directs his step or man plans his way and god directs his steps type thing is uh you again you know there's nothing wrong with making plans and having that vision like i'm not all sitting over here just being like you shouldn't think that way that's fine <laughs> but i'm just saying it's uh like, God often has a way of throwing wrenches in our way. Because very often in my life, like, that's what I'll think is, I'll think, in retrospect, I'll think, like, if this would have things that I wanted often in my life, that I was just like, oh, if things were just this way, it would be so much better and easier. But then, like, the very, the very way that reality was set up and how it, like, wasn't in alignment with what I thought was going to be great is the is probably the thing that i most needed to to prob that's that's probably produced the kind of fruit that i've needed in my life that probably wouldn't have happened any other way you yeah. know what i mean and so it's a yeah. um, which isn't which again which isn't to say there's probably you could probably think of a lot of examples on the other side of where you have coursed you know and and molded your life in ways that have been beneficial too i'm just saying
1: yeah you know, no, i I will say I know myself and I am guilty of the over planner of the control mm-hmm. like this is what my life's gonna look like da 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 da, da. Mm-hmm. um <laughs> i I'm so guilty of that, and it has done me a lot of good. I think there's wisdom in that, but mm-hmm. I've also as of late realized there is negative to that, and I've done things to purposely exercise to kind of let those things go, yeah yeah. Part of that has bring brought me hurt and pain as well, mm-hmm. which is just part of it and I'm okay with that. But I'm now trying to find that balance of like, there's wisdom in planning, there's wisdom in right. having some sort of long-term vision, but there's also wisdom in being willing to be hands open. And right. Respect. And so trying to find the way to do that. And I think lately I've been more purposely doing things in my life to exercise that kind of like like letting go um sort of expression of life in a lot of ways and i think i've seen a lot of good i've seen some bad and i'm working through it i'm finding that balance
0: (laughs) we're all figuring it out you know we're we're very my wife see like my wife is the very structured one who has plans and things and I'm very much more like, like I would be somewhere like living in a caravan with a bunch of gypsies if it weren't for her, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, and I'm neither a... and neither is good or bad. It's just we all need each other, you know. God's buried grace.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a I'm. I find myself to be this duality personality where I enjoy plans and I enjoy structures, but I'm also a huge fan of like the whole ideology of improvisation
0: mm.
1: and this, this going with the flow and the yes. And, and, um, so I always say like, I'm a, like I'm the kind of loose structure improvisationalist <laughs> where it's like, I've got this loose structure and this vision, but like, I'm like taught like ducking and weaving as I go through it to just yeah. like, roll with it. Um, and like, I try to find ways not to live on either extreme because I, yeah. I, I can be that pendulum, um, like most people, <laughs> like, I think we can pendulum, but the, yeah, I'm just a walking contradiction and <laughs> the way that I exist sometimes doesn't even make sense to me, but it's, it's, a <laughs> it's the cross I right there.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it makes total sense to me. So that's great. Oh, <laughs> uh, well what else you got we should probably wrap up you have any other thoughts
1: um no i mean i think i think that was helpful i think that's just sort of it's been good to just talk it out because it's been weighing on me and i think you know i just think i wanna i want to think well about the the choices i make religiously yeah um, you know it's i think sometimes it's hard with my family because you know they they respect my decision they they see me as a wise responsible person um but i mean even even some of the the i the patch that i went through kind of right after finding orthodoxy was not the best and so i think there's always that even in myself It's like i don't want to feel like i'm running and jumping into these things as a sh shock of mm. some like
0: burning rebound, of dead. Wood. rebound religion
1: yeah. <laughs> right and i don't think it is and um, and i i think i found orthodoxy before all that happened but um not not too too soon before so there's always that i think because <laughs> i i i mean I'm talking very vaguely, but i kind of struggle with manic episodes and i have for the last three years and it's mm-hmm. not very regular it's very erratic it's not um it's not normal um in in the way that you know clinically described Mm. and so for me I don't want this to be just some like manic like backlash and I don't think it is. but there's a not there's a rational part in me that knows well it could be it could be this thing that's like flowing from that but it just seems so long-lasting and so uh, so different Um, and like just because I also can say just because something is realized in a manic episode doesn't mean it's bad.
0: Like yeah. there,
1: there are positive things that come <laughs> from manic episodes as yeah. uh, as much as they can sometimes be destructive, but.
0: <laughs> that's a really, yeah, that's a really healthy thing to think I think too, or realize. Um, is your family, I was just wondering this, is your family all, like would they be cool if you became Orthodox?
1: Oh yeah, I think especially if it was a long-term, The when I first, came to Orthodox and I told them hey I'm thinking about converting to orthodoxy it was like what cult are you joining like what is this and like yeah. um, they have a friend who he works um, he works at a seminary in Phoenix and they kind of were like we should go to lunch together and you can ask him about orthodoxy like really mm. low-key being like we need to talk with him so mm. we can get he's actually really helpful and like it was it was positive and I I know that they're just caring and they they've, yeah. they've had some issues with um, really uh, legalistic religions and that was their view of orthodoxy that it was mm. this legalistic thing which is so funny because from my experience it's not that
0: yeah uh, it's a weird it's like a, a weird <laughs> orthodoxy is hard to understand I think because it's such a unchanging and in that sense, like really conservative um tradition that's just like does all these things so it can look like I, I i can understand how from an evangelical lens you'd come to that and just be like, God, must it's gotta be a bunch of just like dead row religion, religious ritual, like empty ritual and legalism. Um which, you know, I'm sure there is some of that. Uh but it's just
1: yeah. I mean, with with every religion it can be. It's, yeah you know, that it's just there, but I haven't experienced that. And like, as I've been kept going to it, they're much more open. My mom was at at one point going to be willing to go with me to liturgy and see what it's about. And I think they know for me, like I I take it, my belief in religion seriously. So they, they see that, that careful consideration. So I don't think it worries them. But at first I think they were a little like, what is this? (laughs) Like, Mm. is this some weird, like culture, <laughs> but they've been um, like, they're just supportive. So I think, you know, they would, and it's Christianity. I think talking with mm. their, their friend was very helpful because it, it gave them this sense of like, okay, this is not some weird, like cult. That's off the wall. It's still a type of Christianity.
0: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, that's good. I mean, that would be a, that would be an un, you know, an unhelpful dynamic. If that was part of it too, you know. Yeah, I don't I mean, know.
1: My, my family can be skeptical, and it's probably where I get it. Um, but in the last couple of years, they've they've opened up in a way that I think is so great. Because um, when hmm. I grew when I was growing up, my mom used to be sort of more closed, where you know, like mm-hmm. Catholics aren't Christians, and this and that, and like. <laughs> sister married um, a guy who identifies as Catholic. He goes to Protestant church with her and has gone to mm. Protestant church but he he identifies as Catholic and um, likes the tradition of that. And I think through that she just sort of been opened up too. Where at first she was like, Does he really love God? Like she's all worried about it and it's like he's such like I think seeing him and seeing the dynamic, like she's she's opened up for that. So I think that was part of her worry of just like, you know, I want, like they they want the right things for us. So sure. you know, they can be sometimes skeptical and you know, um, what can seem like, I think sometimes seem like negative. I don't see it that way. I think it's just positive and part of what they're supposed to do. So yeah.
0: They're, they're parents of- That's good. Yeah. I think that's part of that healthy communication thing, you know, like realizing, people are just trying to do and true things as much as they can. I mean, unless they're like a sociopath, then they're probably not, but, um, so, well, cool. I'll stop the recording and then we can.
1: Sounds good.
0: Say whatever we want to say off the air. (laughs) What are we doing? Uh,